Luke chapter 19, verse 45, down to chapter 20, verse 8. This is what God's word says. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we ask now that by your Spirit, you would incline our hearts to your testimonies. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the holy food of your word. Speak to us and attune our ears to your instruction, to your voice, that we might know you better today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Over our last few studies in this 19th chapter of Luke's gospel, we've been seeing what is the unfolding of the three offices of Jesus Christ, that he came to be the prophet, the priest, and the king. Remember how we saw in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem that Jesus revealed himself to be the king of kings, and even that, the humble king riding on a donkey. Followed by, last Sunday, we saw that in his lament over Jerusalem, because of the judgment that would come upon them due to their unbelief, we saw Christ as the weeping prophet, the greater Jeremiah, if you will. And now we see today in our passage, Christ as the priest who cleanses his temple. Of course, many of us are familiar with this account of Jesus entering into the temple in Jerusalem and driving out all the commercial activity and money-making trade and even turning over tables and evicting everyone. Now, Luke doesn't specify, but the other gospel writers explain that what was being sold were primarily animals for sacrifice. And technically, this in and of itself was not necessarily malicious, at least in its original intents, because Well, it was Passover, it was the feast, which meant that Jews from all over the land would would journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And some had to travel short distances, while others had to travel very, very long distances, all by foot. And in coming to Jerusalem at the temple, they, they would have the privilege of partaking in the worship of God through sacrificial offerings. And the worshiper, of course, according to the Old Testament, was commanded by God to bring an unblemished animal for sacrifice. But if we're talking about full-grown sheep and oxen, I mean, it's kind of hard to lug that thing hundreds of miles to Jerusalem if you're coming from far away, especially since they didn't exactly have Ford F-150s or big trucks back then. And so it could be a reasonable thing for 
Jewish pilgrims to have the opportunity to purchase unblemished animals near the temple and be relieved of the burden of their journeys. And so selling animals in and of itself may not have been malicious originally, but the problem was that this buying and selling had filled the temple in place of true worship. It's not that this business activity was taking place in some nearby marketplace for the convenience of Jewish travelers, but rather the place of worship had become a marketplace. I mean, look at the sequence of events in verse 45. Jesus entered the temple, and then after having entered it, he began to drive out those who sold. Which means that within the temple grounds was all this commercial activity, which according to ancient sources was filled with profiteering and price gouging, all headed up by the high priest. I mean, he was basically head of the cartel. You see, the house of God had become nothing more than a business center, if we can even call it that. And the priests were just businessmen, politicians, tradesmen. And so the temple in Jerusalem was devoid of true spiritual life and knowing God. Instead, it was teeming with ungodliness and worldliness. And that's why Jesus was so indignant. And out of zeal for the vindication of God's name, he entered into the temple and drove out everyone so as to cleanse it from all the spiritual defilement. It's exactly as the prophet Malachi foretold in Malachi 3.1 that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and he will be like a refiner's fire, purifying the sons of Levi. God himself would come to purge the temple and priesthood of all its impurities. Now, having said all of this, the important question I want to focus our attention on this morning is this. In purifying the temple... Jesus cleansed out all the junk. But in cleansing it out, what did Jesus fill it with? What was Jesus restoring in his purging of the temple? Well, if you take a look at the text, it's clear that it was the word of God being preached and taught. Notice what verse 47 says, that after driving everyone out, he was teaching daily in the temple. And again in verse 1 of chapter 20, one day as Jesus was uh, teaching, and, uh, teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, this is what he was doing day after day. After evicting everyone, what Jesus did was he seized the temple and he reclaimed it as his pulpit for the rest of the Passion Week. And this was true worship restored. This was the temple consecrated, made holy, namely, when the pulpit was restored. And there was once again the faithful proclamation of God's word, whereby people come to know God for who He really is through the gospel of His Son. You see, what this shows us is that the power of God, at work by the Spirit of God, is through the word of God alone. Because God's spirit works through his word. As Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is useless. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. God's word alone is enough to impart spiritual life into his people. 
Because it is through his word that we come to know him and behold his face, as it were. And that's what we were made for. That's the longing and hungering of every soul. Eternal life, which is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. What God's people need more than anything is a true knowledge of him through Jesus Christ. That's how we grow. It's in in the grace and knowledge of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And look, if that's true, what does this tell us about how the church must be built? What the church must be about? What must ground the ministry of God's church? And the most important facet of a church's spiritual life and well-being is not the kids' programs or the, the music or, or even the outreach. I mean, they're all fine things. But everything flows from the faithful ministry of preaching and teaching God's Word. Because it is by His Word that the Spirit of God consecrates His household and sanctifies His people. And we can have everything else... We're going to have all the people, all the money, all the buildings, all the activities. But if the lifeblood of this church ever drifts from the sole dependence and centrality of hungering to know God through his word, then this church will begin to crumble in God's eyes and become spiritually lifeless. Because again, as Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And we see this from the indictment Jesus gives as he's cleansing out the temple. Notice how he quotes from scripture. He began to drive out those who sold and saying to them, verse 46, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now this phrase, my house shall be a house of prayer, is quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7, where God announces his vision of his house one day being filled with foreigners from all nations. And the idea is that God's house was always meant to be a place where the whole world would come to know him and commune with him. And even before Isaiah said these words, King Solomon said the same thing beforehand in his prayer of consecration over the newly built temple in Jerusalem. And in that prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41, Solomon envisions foreigners from the ends of the earth coming to hear of God's great name. And praying to the one true God of Israel. And so the point is this. That God's house must be where God is made known. Where the world can see that the only true God is worshipped. And sought in prayer. Through the knowledge of Him. You can't pray to a God you don't know. And you can't know God. Unless He makes Himself known through His word. But what was the temple like in Jesus' day? It was nothing but a building. And that's it. It was the house of God in name only. There was no spiritual life. Only commercial life. Worldly pursuits. Earthly treasures being sought after. Now the Jews, they they prided themselves in the temple because, I mean, it was the bastion of their religion. For as long as the temple was standing, God was with us. Uh, We were his favored people. Which, by the way, is why God judged that nation by destroying the temple for good in 70 AD. Because in God's eyes, it was nothing but a hollow building. In fact, when Jesus says these words, there's actually another Old Testament passage that he's referring to. 
You know, in our English translations, the other part of that verse, but you have made it a den of robbers, it doesn't have any quotations around it. And so we might think that it, it was just Jesus' own commentary. But even these words are coming from the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 7. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, if you look there, God, God, God rebukes his people. He rebukes the people of Judah for being a spiritual wasteland filled with ungodliness and wickedness. And as God calls them to repentance, he says to them in verse 4, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. And God, God repeats it three times because he's, he's mimicking their spiritual pride and their attitude. Oh, this is the temple, the temple, the temple. That's what God is saying. Because the people of Judah, were, they were confident that God was with them no matter how godless they were. Because, oh, we got the temple here. We're, we're all good to go. God favors us. And so God says to them in verse 8, Look, you're, you're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? That's where Jesus is getting the language from. Den of robbers. God is saying, this, My house has become a headquarter of, of, of thugs, a home base of evildoers. But what's important is what God says next. He says, Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Go look at Shiloh, God says. Why? What's important about Shiloh? Well, Shiloh is a place where, if you recall, it was the place where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant originally rested after Israel came out of Egypt and entered into the Promised Land. And it remained there for about 400 years through the time of the judges and through Samuel until Jerusalem was established as the capital city under King David. And so that's where God's presence was initially, at Shiloh. But before David officially moved the tabernacle to Jerusalem... Do you remember what happened to the ark in 1 Samuel chapter 4? Because Israel was being unfaithful to the Lord and walking away from him, God allowed the Philistines to capture the ark from Shiloh. And it was carried off to Philistine territory. Now eventually, by God's grace, it was returned to them with no help from his people. It was returned to them by cows that were more, more obedient to God than his own people were. But even as the ark was returned to Israel, never again did the ark return to Shiloh. And so what was Shiloh? Nothing anymore. It was just a plot of land. Psalm 78 verse 60, God says, In his wrath, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and he delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. People thought that the place, Shiloh, was magical, that it was special. Oh, it's a good luck charm, this place. But it became a barren land once God's presence left. And so what God was saying in Jeremiah 7 was this, you have made my house a den of robbers. You think you're just dandy because the temple's still standing? Go study history. What, what happened to Shiloh can happen to Jerusalem. I can leave this place. 
and then it'll be shown to be nothing. This is what Jesus had in mind in quoting these Old Testament verses. And he was issuing the same warning to the Jews in the first century, which accords with what we just saw last Sunday, isn't it? Weeping over Jerusalem because of the destruction that would come. This great temple in Jerusalem, which was rebuilt after the exile, apart from truth and godliness through God's word, it was nothing but an empty warehouse. And the same message applies for us today, doesn't it? A church that is not founded on the ministry of God's word is but a spiritual barren land. And perhaps in the same vein, God would say to us, Oh, you think that symbol of the cross on your roof means anything? Oh, if you think plastering Jesus' name all over your ministry is what makes you a church, while your pulpit is a clown show, well, you're in for a surprise. Listen, God will never forsake His people. But God will forsake mere church buildings, mere social gatherings, mere entertainment centers, or big concerts every Sunday. And that's all it is. Because where God's word is absent, so is His holy and gracious presence. I wonder how many churches Jesus would enter into today. And to the surprise of many, maybe people would be excited to see him. Hey, Jesus. Hey, buddy. But what he would do is he'd immediately turn over tables. And with the whip of cords, drive out the ministers and the congregants. Because it is only a shell of gospel ministry devoid of true spiritual life. May that never be said of us. That seats may be filled. But souls are empty. The music may be loud, but God is silent because they have silenced his voice, which they could hear clearly if they would only preach his word faithfully. A man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart and he knows what are truly spiritual deserts and wastelands, despite what they seem on the outside. But here's the thing, that the word of God has power to revive even the spiritual deserts and barren lands of dead religion. I mean, that's what we see Jesus doing here, don't we? The Lord enters into this spiritually lifeless temple and He renews it. He breathes new life into it by speaking forth His Word, by reclaiming it as His pulpit. And John chapter 12 tells us that Gentiles who were in Jerusalem at the time, they came to seek Jesus. Nations were being drawn to him in this prototypical fashion, even during Passion Week. Such that we see Christ and the preaching of his word as the true international house of prayer as envisioned by Isaiah. Revived. You know, there's this fascination in in the church with the idea and longing for revival and No doubt, we we desperately need a revival today, a great awakening of souls dead asleep in sin. And certainly God can and has done extraordinary outpourings of His mercy upon people at different points throughout history. But the problem is that by and large, I think we've lost sight of the biblical definition of revival. And I remember growing up in the church and I mean, it was like revival was scheduled to happen twice a year which is really interesting that the Holy Spirit always seemed to do the reviving on Saturday nights only when there was loud music playing 
but he never seemed to accomplish that on a Monday morning or a Wednesday afternoon. I didn't know that he was constrained to blackout dates. I mean, look, revival doesn't come about because the the worship band is playing anywhere between two to six hours on a late evening. But true revival always comes from God's word coming upon a barren land. And God mysteriously, graciously is pleased to give ears to hear to the masses. And when that happens, hearts are jolted awake, cut to the heart. And they come to know God through repentance and faith in Christ. I mean, look at the pattern in the scripture. King Josiah, he took the throne at one of the lowest points in Judah's history, near the end. This is Second Chronicles 34, Second Kings 22. When Josiah became king at a young age, ungodliness reigned over the land. And God's word had been forgotten, neglected, so much so that they literally lost it. They, they didn't know where the book of the law was, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They misplaced the thing. How do you do that? But one day, when some of the workmen were doing some remodeling of the temple, the priest happened to find a book. It was... Apparently buried underneath all the two-by-fours and sheetrock and whatever other stuff that was going on in the construction. And he goes, hey, what's this? Well, it turns out it was Scripture, the law of God. That's how much they neglected it. And when the Word of God was recovered and read in the hearing of the king and announced to the people, the king and his people were cut to the heart and they repented of their unfaithfulness to God, of how much they neglected his law. And hearts were changed. Idolatry was cleansed throughout the land under King Josiah. The law was obeyed. They had neglected the Passover feast all those years. And finally they returned to celebrating it. Which obviously as we understand it to be the anticipation of the ministry of Christ. Nevertheless it says that under King Josiah no Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and all the people rejoiced. That was a great awakening. True worship was restored. The land was spiritually healed under Josiah. All because the word of God was recovered and proclaimed and that was it. And God poured out a spirit of repentance and grace. Same thing when after Judah's return from exile. Remember the, fir- the first wave of return was under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, the building. The- but that was just the, build- the physical building. And so God raised up Ezra, who was the priest and a scribe, who led the second wave of return to exiles. And what was Ezra called to do by God? Not rebuild anything through hands, hands and bricks but to rebuild and to restore worship and consecrate that temple. How? By teaching the word of God to the people. Ezra 7.10, you know, he said his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach his statute, statute to the people of Israel. And as they heard God's word being taught to them, it says in Ezra 10.1 that while Ezra was praying, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel And the people wept bitterly in repentance. 
knowing and confessing that all that happened to them, all the exile and everything that they had endured was God's righteous judgment for their sins. And so when they returned to, uh, to, to the land, it wasn't just that they, they returned with their feet, with their bodies from Babylon to Jerusalem, but through the word of God, their hearts returned to him by faith. Again, it was all by the word of God. And you know, even in church history, we see this so evidently. Perhaps no better example than the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. I, I mentioned this in passing in a membership class a couple of weeks ago. I have no idea why I started talking about this in membership class. Maybe that's why it went so long. I apologize. But listen, the, the Protestant Reformation was not some new movement. It was not some new theological innovation or, or, or a formation of a new denomination. But it was a reformation, a reformation, a recovery, a return to the truth of the gospel, which had been lost and buried under the regime of Roman Catholicism. Europe was a spiritually barren land because the word of God was obfuscated. Why? Because people didn't have access to the word. Because the word of God was all in Latin and no one understood it. And... To our surprise, many, if not most, of the Catholic priests who were conducting the Mass, even they didn't understand it. They just learned how to recite all the syllables. And so dead religion ruled the land. And people came to do all of these mindless rituals and gave money to Rome out of just sheer fear of hell and hoping that by doing enough religious deeds and giving enough money and doing all this stuff that they might have a better chance of making it into heaven and not have to stay too long in purgatory, which was just unbiblical fiction. But what happened in that barren land which God could have easily deserted? Well, in his sovereign grace and mercy, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, he enrolled himself into the monastery monastery with, with, with the hopes of earning God's favor for himself. Because Luther was terrified of God's judgment. And, and, and he would later write that if ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, it was I. I tried harder than anyone. And so there he went to the monastery. He studied the original languages of Hebrew and Greek so he could begin to read scripture for himself. And when he did, his eyes opened wide to the plain truth of the gospel that the righteousness of God was not something that we do a righteousness of ourselves that we offer to God. It was not something that we could or must earn but that the righteousness of God was a gift from God to sinners who could never earn it. That Jesus Christ came to take the very place of sinners he, he came to save and accomplish perfect righteousness for them and suffer the wrath of God for them. And the good news of the gospel, which Luther could never see before, but now could see with tears of relief and joy in his eyes because he had lived his whole life trying to bear a burden that he could never bear. His eyes were finally opened to see the gospel that, that solely by faith in Christ alone do we receive this gift of perfect righteousness. And that is enough. We contribute nothing to salvation except the sin that made it necessary and the sin that was placed upon Christ on the cross, the full weight of which he bore on our behalf. And this 
changed Luther. He was converted to the word of God. And up until this point, all of his, his labors, all of his ministering in the name of Christ, all of his serving Christ, all of his pursuit, it was all nothing. And by his own admission, he would say, looking back, that all that time, he hated Christ. Because he could only see Christ as this terrifying judge whom he could never appease and not as the Savior who came to take his place and lift up the burden that was crushing him, crushing his soul his whole life. That's what happened to Luther. But do you know what he also ended up doing? Well, first he began to preach all these things to people and the Catholic overlords got mad. And so Luther, what he did was he ran away and he hid in a castle because a prince by the name of Prince Frederick III was sympathetic to Luther. And so he hid in a castle for three months. And while in that castle, locked in a room, I've been there before, it was, a, it was a, not a very nice room. Martin Luther translated the Bible into the common people's language, into German, so that they could read it for themselves. And when that got out, and ordinary German citizens began to read the undefiled, pure word of God and understand the gospel for themselves. All of Germany lit up like a wildfire of spiritual revival. And it spread to all of Europe. Because people's hearts were pierced with the arrow of divine holy love in Christ. And they were transformed by the gospel, awakened out of their dead religion. And their hearts began to actually beat with true spiritual life of genuine love for God. Rather than just a dreadful fear of Him. This is what happened. And it was all by the word. Later in life, Luther would say this in response to the notion that he was the spark plug for this massive revival and reformation. And he would say, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? He was saying this in response to people, uh, a movement called Lutheranism being started. Man, I like that. We need people that talk like that more instead of, oh, look at my legacy of all these years of ministry. And Luther said this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote, that is translated God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. I mean, do you see this pattern throughout redemptive history? That when God's word comes upon people, he can revive what was once the valley of dry bones. Go to any dying church and just preach the word, show the glory of Christ, feed the flock and see what happens. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. This is how God cleanses and purifies his church. It is through the, the faithful, unadulterated preaching of, of his word. And the temptation is for churches to stray from the word because well, they lose faith in the efficacy and power of God's word. They don't, they don't think it's enough. And perhaps in these times of 
increasing hostility and, and incompatibility with the world's values and principles. How, how easy is it for, for many to want to twist and contort the truth to make it fit in somehow? And perhaps some of us are surrounded with friends and neighbors and co-workers and we feel that we have to constantly defend what the Bible says, which is good, but maybe we do it even to a fault. To the point where we have a hard time just saying it straight because we're, we're trying so hard to explain every possible objection and, and, and explain every argument, which happens to me a lot of times. And look, it's, it's great to be thorough to, and try to be accessible in how we communicate the gospel. But at some point, we got to just get to the point and talk about the simple reality that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. And He calls us to confess our sin, confess that we can never save ourselves, and trust Him to save us by what He's done on the cross. You see, what we need to remember is that the power does not reside in us, but in the gospel itself and the truth of Christ. Yes, always be prepared to make a defense for the reason, for the hope that is within you with gentleness and respect. But at the end of the day, make sure you just preach the word and let the truth vindicate itself. Because it will. Notice verse 47, Jesus was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, which is probably the, the lay leaders, they were all seeking to destroy Jesus because he threw a wrench in their whole religious machinery. And so Jesus faced hostility as, um, as, as much as you could face it. But what does it say in verse 48? But they didn't find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Because it's the words of the living God. It will stand against every challenge and assault. And I think of the words of Charles Spurgeon. When he says, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and it will defend itself. God's word will defend itself. Just say it straight. We don't have to be embarrassed about the truth and be overly apologetic. I mean, look at how Jesus handles it. In the opening of chapter 20, as the religious leadership confront Jesus to challenge him and possibly corner him, which we'll see a lot more of as opposition to Jesus will intensify as it gets closer to his crucifixion at the end of this Passion Week. But the gang shows up and demands to know from Jesus Verse 2, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Hey, what gives you the right, Jesus, to do all these things and to say all these things? Well, isn't that the question that we implicitly fear before the world? They say, oh, don't, don't tell me what to do. No one can tell, tell me what to do, so keep it to yourself. And that was the same sentiment that was thrown at Jesus by the Jewish leaders. But notice what Jesus does in verse 3, or rather, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't engage in all their argumentation. He doesn't play by their rules. But instead, he turns the table on them by asking them, I'll ask you the question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And the baptism of John, John was just referring to his ministry as a whole, John as prophet. And of course, they didn't, they didn't believe him. The, the, the Pharisees, the, the Jewish leaders, they rejected John. And if they say, well, we believe John's ministry was from heaven, well, they were lying, but they quickly realized that even if they answered, yes, yes, we believe that he was really uh, God's prophet sent from heaven, then they'd be held accountable to God for rejecting his message. And so, no, we can't do that. But then if they answer, no, we think John was just a man, not a true prophet from God. 
then they knew that the people would stone him because they believe that he's a prophet because it was clear. And this whole dilemma exists because they were suppressing the plain and simple truth. And you see, the point is this, that truth prevails every time. You never have to be embarrassed by it. You don't have to overly defend it. Just preach it. And only those who reject the truth are going to suffer embarrassment. Not that we should embarrass them, but that they will answer to God for it. And so here, the Jewish leaders, they they couldn't compute. It was a lose-lose situation. And so they answered Jesus by saying, "Uh, we don't know. We have no answer. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you where the authority comes from. Now, obviously, Jesus had spent three years testifying to them that he was sent from God, but they didn't believe him. So it's not that Jesus actually withheld the truth from them and discriminated against them. But this is Jesus' way of saying, look, here's the truth. But if you don't want to listen, then fine, don't listen. I mean, what, you, you thought I was going to beg and do a little song and dance? Maybe there were a little incentive in there? I'm not going to diminish or dilute the truth to gratify your unbelieving heart. No, if only churches in America could heed this and how badly we need to be cleansed by the mind of Christ and think like Jesus thinks. But instead, we make such a fool of ourselves begging and pandering to the carnal flesh Oh, please come to our church. Please, please. Oh, come to our Christmas service. There's Santa Claus. Your child can sit on, sit on his lap. Which, frankly, to me, is extremely creepy. Oh, come. We got, we got an Easter bunny. Come to our Easter service. Or better yet, oh, come to our Easter service. We have the Jonas Brothers singing a song. Now, you think I'm kidding. This is real. It happened several years ago. At a big church. I won't name any names. We'll just say that it was a very purpose-driven Easter service. And to no one's surprise, the turnouts looked more like a women's conference. I mean, look, do you see Jesus ministering to people like this? He just preached the gospel, and that was sufficient. He was a straight shooter without any apologies, because the word of God is enough. And so we need to preach Christ to the world lovingly, tenderly, winsomely, graciously. And if after all of that, if it's folly to those who are perishing, then it is folly to them. But for those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes in the gift of His righteousness by faith in Christ alone. Church, let us never forget that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. And even as we see the Lord growing our church and congregation, frankly, I hope not too fast, I hope that as a church we can always just endeavor to keep things simple. And just be content, remaining as jars of clay until the end. 
and nothing to adorn the vessel. And not fall into temptation of industrialized church. And what good is it to have big buildings, big production, lots of ministries and events if we should fail in the basic things of really knowing God, growing in the word, loving one another, and sharing the gospel with those God has placed around us. There's plenty to occupy ourselves in these simple basic things that God has called for us to do for his glory. Good things can become distractions if it takes us away from the ultimate thing of growing to see Christ more clearly and to love him more dearly. And may God help us to do that for the glory of his name alone. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that our hope is found not an inkling in ourselves, but in the truth and in the sufficiency of who Christ is. And that we have your whole counsel given to us, revealed to us, by which we see his precious gospel, see Christ himself. Would you help us to be faithful unto him? And we thank you that as you have spoken your word to us by your written word you have also given to us your visible your tangible word of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and as we take of the bread and the cup we are reminded that truly we are nothing apart from Christ and that it is him we proclaim and that it is by his words that we subsist and that we live by not bread, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And it is the word that we so cherish, not just mere facts, but the word made flesh, Christ himself who gave himself for us. Oh Lord, help us to treasure him and help us to receive the bread and the cup by faith that we might be reminded of all that we are in him and in him alone. We ask this in his name. Amen.